Thank you for joining the Modern SaaS Finance Academy. These courses were curated to guide you on building your competency and craft as a finance professional in the software, SaaS, and subscription industries. Enjoy this session. Thank you, everybody, for joining us. We're really excited about this particular session, Three Best Practices for Forecasting for Fundraising. When I talk to my customers and folks that are in the market, everyone always wants to know who hasn't been through it before, what do, am I expected to do? What are people looking for from me? And we've got a great couple of speakers that are, I'm going to introduce in just a moment to answer these questions for you. Any of you are old friends and customers, thank you for continuing to use us. Many of you we've never spoken to before, and I hope this is insightful for you that we really planned it out because we're going to start off with what we hope you learned today because this was like three tips that you can take. And um, here and Dave and I, and prepping for this, kind of pulled out three things. We're going to put a lot more meat on the bones as we come down. But you want to know the metrics that investors want from you for your next stage. Of course, you got to deliver on today, but what people, process, and technology you put in place to deliver a great product, build a great company, and have the measures prepared in order to earn that next round of fundraising and just make it very clear and rational to earn it and get it. And then second is, because this is about uh, somewhat about forecasting, is what if scenario planning is so critical to make happen, but it's so much more than just the numbers. There's the people and the processes that you're trying to dictate and share about, which gets into the third item, which is people, there's some numbers, there's some metrics based upon your type of business model, your high ACV or high volume or the industry segment that you go after, the stage that you're at, and you want to be able to pass the sniff test on the benchmarking, but you also want to be able to, because you've done that, then tell your individual story about what makes your company special and your uh, company and your trajectory unique. So let me introduce the joint speakers that we have today. Uh, first is Dave Kellogg. Dave is this principal of Dave Kellogg Consulting, and Dave is a longtime, very successful SaaS CFO, and uh, including of a one of the top FP&A products, Host Analytics. So he's lived this life quite a bit and uh, how to guide the product and help his customers be successful. But Dave, do you want to build on that from there? Yeah, super. No, I'm, uh, I've always considered myself a, a kind of closet FP&A person, uh, but my actual professional background is CMO and CEO. I've been a GM as well, but worked at a lot of different SaaS companies in growth and uh now currently sit on boards. I'm on uh, about four different boards right now and advising a half dozen companies. So, so real happy to be here. Thank, thanks for having me, Dave. And doing this recording from the beautiful forest of Oregon. So <laughs> it's great to have you playing this for everybody in a beautiful place, Dave, with snow coming down in the background. So, and then Mahir Jobelia is the managing director and then the co-head of the technology the media and technology and telecommunications portion of KPMG corporate finance. And he has been part of so many financial transactions and guided so many founders through how to think about this, how to best present themselves, how to get the best financial return for what they've built. And Mahir, do you want to build on that from there? Sure. So David, thank you for organizing this event. Uh, great to be here. So this, uh, I'm Mahir Jabali. I'm a managing director and the co-head of the tech investment banking group at KPMG. I'm based here in Silicon Valley. And uh, just a thumbnail on our practice, KPMG is the most active advisor in the middle market in M&A and private placements. In the last five years, we've closed 2,800 plus deals. <laughs> <laughs> All 
in the <laughs> market. These are all M&A transactions where we have either represented the buyer or the seller, largely the seller, and also private placements. So M&A transactions generally between 25 to 500 million in enterprise value, uh, and also uh, capital raises generally 15 to 200 million. Uh, our clients are generally founder-owned companies, venture-backed companies, and private equity-backed companies. I spend all my time in software and services. I have other colleagues who cover uh, other subsectors within tech like internet, digital media, uh, FinTech, healthcare, IT, semiconductors, et cetera. So uh, great to be here and uh, looking, looking forward to this conversation, David. Thank you. Well, I, and I hope all of you listening right now are thinking to yourselves, we got two good speakers who really know their stuff. 2,800 transactions is a lot of transactions to draw experience upon me here. Thanks. So let's get into it. Let's, let's uh, start building on top of making those three tips happen. So some of you have perhaps seen this before, but I always like to go back to the foundation. This is how companies grow. And it was built with one of our former board members, a great leader named Jeff Epstein, former CFO of Oracle, now finance operating partner, investment venture partners. And Jeff kind of built, uh, starting from the bottom, working your way up, the seed, and then series A, series B. What is it you need to accomplish? And we're going to talk briefly and spend some time on this slide. Then we're going to double click and go in more depth on each of these. So we're going to do a little topical now and set us up a little bit more. But at seed, right, you're just trying to find out product market fit. You just want 10 happy customers. It's really simple. You're just trying to manage cash because you've just got some engineering hires. But what people are looking for at the next level is that can you prove the revenue model on being able to sell what you've just created by showing a fast growth rate and then the reps that you hire being able to make plan. And there's some measures, again, we'll go deeper on this, but on unit economics and, and uh, what your CMRR is divided by the client acquisition costs and trying to track that and show that you can do that. So the growth rate. And then comes series B, which is prove the net re uh, renewal model, which is show that you can get people to buy from you a second and third time. There's a bunch of processes that go underneath all this, but a core measure is what's the average CMRR per customer and how is that growing as you cross sell and land and expand and then there's some more metrics you can go deeper on. And then the next stage after that is you broke a lot of glass, you tried a lot of experiments to get to this point. Now you're just trying to double down, refine and make that business predictable and start driving a lot more profit that comes out of this. And then on top of that, the Nirvana, at least for the milestone on a big outcome is a unicorn or an IPO or M&A is to take a very capital efficient business model that you have right now and move it to adjacent markets and adjacent geographies. And so I wanna take a step back, get to Dave and Mahir. Dave, go, go ahead first, your perspectives on all this, what we want the audience to learn against our three tips. Sure, thanks. So, you know, the, the, the nice thing about SaaS metrics is, is there's so many to choose from. Right? <laughs> <laughs> Consultants in business. Um, so, so I think this is a great chart that kind of talks about what's important at each phase. Um, and I think, look, the, the biggest point was the first one you made on those three tips, that knowing the metrics for the next stage is what really matters. So, right, if we all, you know, if you're trying to raise an A and you're using seed metrics, it doesn't work well, right? You wanna be looking forward on this chart, I think was a great point that you made. The, the other thing I'd say about the chart before drilling into the, the metrics themselves, because I'll, I'll come back to that after I let uh, here go in, but, but the other thing I'd say about the chart itself structurally is that these things stay important, right? Uh, 
One of my favorite quotes is from Don Valentine, founder of Sequoia. All companies go out of business for the same reason. They, they run out of cash, <laughs> right? So, so cash is, is definitely important at seed, but it's important all the way up. In my opinion, unit economics, same thing. Buy around Series A, Series B. You need to get unit, you know, good unit economics, but they stay important the whole way, right? They, they don't become not important at D or F. So we, we can drill into which particular metrics at which particular stages, but, but structurally, I, I love the chart. And the only thing I would add to this is actually these, these metrics are really important. Uh, and we find that when, when you have companies where they get great outcomes, whether it's a great exit or a IPO, they, they really follow these metrics and it becomes part of the religion of the company where the CEO knows the metrics, but it's, it's down to the CFO, the salesperson. They really understand these metrics at a very deep level. So I think it's, it's important to create a culture where sort of key people at the company understand these metrics. And also, you know, if you can't, if you can't measure it, you can't manage it. So really setting sort of goals as to, you know, what we want these, some of these metrics to be at. So, you know, I'll give you a great example, you know, net, net dollar retention might be 95%, which might be good in a certain industry, but might not be such so good in another industry. So I think kind of setting benchmarks to what you want to accomplish, where your competitors are, and also kind of setting goals, which where, so everybody knows kind of where they, where they want some of these metrics to be. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's a, if I go back on this, I think it's a super important point that whenever I work with a company and they build kind of a three-year financial model, I like to put the target metrics for that year three out there. So we kind of know where we're shooting. Um, and just to drill in one more level on this, because I'm a SaaS metrics nut, uh, th there's three things I want to talk about. One, um, CAC payback period is also a popular Series A. Some people look just at the CAC, right? How much it costs to buy a dollar of ARR. Some people look at CAC payback period, which is how many months of subscription gross margin does it take to pay back the customer acquisition costs. So that, that's one. I think next row well, on We're going to do a dynamic uh, on the fly as you do this, Dave. Oh, okay. Fair enough. <laughs> next level up. Um, I think that the momentum is with net dollar retention over LTV to CAC. If we were here two or three years ago, I would have said everyone's talking LTV to CAC. I think now people are more focused on net dollar retention. I think that's because LTV is a little bit hard to calculate and even churn can be hard to calculate and NDR is just a simpler metric. So I feel like the momentum's there. And then finally, the one we didn't put on the chart, rule of 40, um, and, and, and uh, there's a lot of good stuff being written about Rule of 40. I just read a report this morning that, that said it, it works better if you weight it like 3x revenue to uh, free cash flow. <laughs> uh, that, that's, how, you know, that's how oriented we are to growth right now. Uh, it's a better predictor when it's weighted. But, but the main thing to me on Rule of 40, and I'd love to hear from you here on this one, is, is I don't think it's appropriate really to series C, D, or F. Like, I, I talk to sometimes five or $10 million companies worried about rule of 40. And my take is it's too early, but, but, but let me, let me I, I, completely, I completely agree with you, Dave. I think the rule of 40 and just, just for folks who don't know the rule of 40, it's re revenue growth uh, percentage plus the EBITDA margin. The sum of those two numbers, if it's greater than 40, that's where a lot of private equity firms get interested. So if you're growing revenues at 20% and if you have a 20% EBITDA margin, 
that that's definitely of of interest to private equity firms. If you're growing revenues at 40% and you know are break even or or slightly negative, that's fine too. Uh, and and the other side of the spectrum, if you're if you're flat on revenues but you're generating 40% EBITDA margin, that's that's still good too. So, uh, but to back to your point, Dave, I think uh, the rule of 40 starts coming into play when companies have some scale. I mean, it's really for us, generally, we look at companies which are at least getting to 20 million plus in revenues before they start thinking about rule of 40. Uh, and, you know, it really depends on the overall, overall sort of uh, market opportunity. If you're, if you, if the market opportunity is there, if you're growing revenues faster, and if you're reinvesting in the business for sales and marketing and, you know, keeping the profitability low, I think that's fine. I think investors would certainly understand that. Uh, but I think it's really important to think about uh, the rule of 40 as you start moving up on this on this value chain towards, you know, CDs, EF, and, and, and potentially an IPO. The one other thing I would add, which is not on this slide, is also, uh, you know, the, uh, being sort of cognizant of uh, hitting numbers. I think, uh, you know, one of the things I've taken lots of companies public in my prior life. And as companies move up in this food chain, uh, investors, whether it's late stage investors or public market investors, they want to see companies actually hit their numbers. So there are companies which, again, going back to sort of the point that David made earlier, think about metrics in your next stage. There are companies which, you know, before they were to go public, long before they go public, they start kind of measuring their salespeople also based on how accurate they are on hitting their numbers, not just hitting their numbers, but uh, creating a structure where they want their, their salespeople to start thinking like a public company where they can actually, if they're giving a forecast, they have to actually stand by their forecast. Because when you go public and if you hit missed numbers first, one, you know, first few quarters out, it really kills the reputation of the company and you don't want to do that. So not too dissimilar, but when you have a new investor who comes in and puts you know, $20, $20 million in a company, you don't want to be missing numbers the first few quarters out of the box. You know, your credibility is really important, so it's really important to uh, under-promise and over-deliver. So I think I'm going to just pile on here. I think one of the other cool things about this chart that we, I've kind of discovered real-time is, yes, the stuff that's important in the past tends to be important in the future, but the stuff in the future often isn't important uh, until it's important. Like as we just talked about. Rule of 40. I know it's, it's <laughs> that's the, that's what we want you guys to, to know. Yeah. 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 That was like a big thing. Like rule of 40 really doesn't matter when you're in series A or B, but by D, C, D or F, it definitely matters. Um, forecast accuracy. I think for a company somewhere around 20 million in ARR week three forecast accuracy should be a sales metric. Right? We want to start measuring that and say who delivers against their number and who doesn't. And, and beating plan is great, but but if you know you land at 120% of plan and you forecast 150, you're still not a total hero in my book. So I, I think it was an excellent point raised. And the last thing I'd say, by the way, the things like customer acquisition cost doesn't matter at sea. You're trying to prove whether anyone will buy this stuff and whether it has value and how much it costs you to acquire them isn't really relevant. So, uh, yeah, I, I like this chart even more, even more now. Well, it's because so many of you, right, is 
could I see who you are on the role or, or first finance hires or one of the key finance folks at your companies? Why the slide's so important is as leaders, your job's to put the stuff in place to be prepared to deliver what you need in the future and then empower your staffs to execute the plan today to deliver against it. But this is what you want to be preparing for. That's you want to keep showing the growth to have it come together. So guys, great input and some great questions already starting to come in. I think we'll punt some of these till the end, but people want to go a little bit deeper. Let's see if, on some of these metrics. Let's go deeper on this. So here's seed to series A. And these next three slides are taking you from seed to A, A to B, and then B onwards and uh, double clicking. If those of you a little bit bigger, uh, just pat yourself on the back that you've done these already as we just start with this first one. And each of them is about focus areas, metrics, and milestones. And we made them the slide a little wordy on purpose so you guys can have something to, to write down and capture as we have the dialogue that goes around it. But in this very early days, as we talked about, you're trying to prove product market fit and then have these metrics. So let's jump to the milestones, Dave, and here. We're here, let's start with you on this one right now. As people are trying to prepare for fundraising and trying to be able to forecast, how do I raise Series A? What are some of the milestones that, that all the folks listening right now should be looking Yeah, I, I think number one, I would say having, um, you know, having sort of customers who are going to be, who are ready to buy or having gone and so, at least having some feedback from potential customers really validates the story. And I, I think, so I, I would put that very high on the list in terms of having some customer validation. Also think about the type of customers. Is it is it mom and pop customers or is it brand name customers? Are these customers who are going to be around, you know, three years from now? I think investors give a lot of credence to customers who uh, have sustainable, are, are gonna be sustainable, right? So I think you're gonna, you wanna think about the type of customers that you go after and then how are you gonna to get to these customers? Is this, a, is this a very fragmented set of customers? Are, are these SMB customers where it's gonna be expensive to get to these customers or are these enterprise customers where uh, the challenge with enterprise customers is there's a long sales cycle. So I think you've got to think about what are the sort of, what's the go-to-market strategy. The one last thing I would say is in terms of the three-year plan, you know, there are too many, too many plans where people have these massive hockey sticks. And if you, I think you've got to be realistic in terms of what you put in front of investors. You really lose credibility when you, when you have, plans which go from, you know, pre-revenues to 100 million in revenues in three years, you just lose your audience within a nanosecond. So I, I, you, you want to be, be cautious, you want to, uh, in terms of how you show your plan, you know, I've yet to meet some, a CEO who's not excited about their business, but at the same time, you want to be measured in terms of what is realistic so that you, you're kind of forecasting something which is achievable and also gets the interest of, of, of your potential investors. Yeah, I, I think, um, and, and by the way, that, that's principle that we here established gets, in my mind, that plan needs to be more and more credible with every round, back to the prior slide. Like you have more liberty <laughs> to be starry-eyed at C to A than you do at D to E, right? At D to E, maybe pretty, pretty pragmatic. Um, 
But look, I think the main point of seed to A is to prove that people prove you've built something that people want to buy, right? Um, how much they paid for it, for example, matters a little less to me. Sometimes I see founders obsessing over pricing at this stage. And, and like, look, you can always increase the price later. And if you double the price, you half your CAC, by the way. <laughs> so, so this is why I'm not worried about CAC. I'm, I'm not really worried about pricing as long as I don't lock into a five-year contract or something. I can always increase the price later. What I'm trying to, to, to answer is, will anybody pay for this software? Um, and I think that's what we need to be focused on. Um, I think the ICP concept here that's brought up, at this stage, it's really a hypothesis, right? Like we think we want to sell to someone who looks like this. Mm -hmm. And I think that's great. And I think the more precise your ICP is, the better, because we can go find that person. Like at my, my last company, the ICP might've been an FP&A person at a 500 million to $1.5 billion, you know, enterprise software or tech company, right? So I, I know exactly who that person is and then I can start shooting at them. So I, I always consider the ICP a hypothesis because by the way, by series E, the ICP is a regression, right? <laughs> You're looking at your customer base and regressing who renews the most, who expands the most. At this phase, it's an aspiration. Um, and the last thing I'd say on this, there's one thing on the slide that I think people can misinterpret uh, where we talk about uh, customer ROI. And sometimes when people see a return on investment, they think, oh, we need to go hire Forrester to do a total economic impact study or produce a single number. And, and, and it's really not about that. It's about value, which it actually says in the, in, the, in the purple column on the right. But I just want to make sure, don't get too literal about customer ROI. What it means is, what's the business value? Would they buy this? What business value do they get? Uh, that, that's really where the focus is. Yeah, I, I would also add that I think from a, think of it from a customer standpoint, if a customer is paying X and the, the value that they're getting from using your product is significantly higher than X and show the economics as to why this is so compelling from a customer standpoint, that can be very powerful. And the last thing I would say is, you know, this is something again, back to Dave's earlier comment on, on Sequoia. Uh, one of the things that they asked all their companies is so what? So what? You know, if 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 you're delivering that value and that value is not 10x better than the your best competitor, which is which might be a big company, you need to be at least 10x better for for you to get attention. Because otherwise, some of these larger companies they can hire more people, they can, they can, they can get to exactly where you are. So I think there needs to be a significant customer value proposition and the ability to sustain, differentiate yourself compared to some of your competitors. That's great input, right? And back to our three tips on uh, knowing that the, what you should prepare for the next stage. No, it's more than just the numbers. Got to show the numbers, but all this involves people around you and then be able to tell your story to get in there. So let's now build into the, the next point, which is moving from series A to series B, because you've set up that foundation, like Dave said, it all builds on top of one another. Dave, let's, let's kick off this one with what it is the milestones that our audience and the finance leaders need to be managing to. Sure, so I think when I look at this slide and I think about series A to B and, and or to C, um, the, 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 the R word starts coming up, repeatability, right? Because 
Because a lot of this in these early days is, okay, you've got 10 customers, you've got a million in ARR, now can you do that in any repeatable fashion? I'd argue that churn comes into play a little bit later. Like I, I was talking to a company the other day that had 3% gross churn. And I was like, you guys are amazing. You're incredible. It's the best I've seen. And they're like, well, we're only two years old and we do three-year deals. And I'm like, oh, <laughs> wait a minute. You, you haven't had time for churn to, to grow to steady state yet. Let's <laughs> put the cork back. That in was the in the small footnote on the bottom, Dave. So. <laughs> I missed that in the, uh, in the footnotes. So I had to recork the champagne. Um, so I do kind of think of this as a flow that at this stage, the real flow is like customer acquisition. Yes, we're starting to think about churn. We're starting to think about, are we selling customers who are going to renew or are going to blow up? That relates to NPS. Um, but to me, this is where we start thinking about, is that sales model repeatable? Um, and, and I'll just do a quick plug for my blog here. Uh, I do author a blog called kelblog.com. Uh, and I blog a lot of these topics. And one of the posts was, a recent post was on how to define a repeatable sales model. And I won't read it to you here, but I have six points. And, and the most important ones are um, defined hiring profile. Who do we go hire? Define training program and define sales kit. Um, and, and, and the more those things are standardized, like we hire persons of this certain background, we put them through this training program and we give them this kit in their bag and then send them out, and then we see this kind of result, right? Um, th that's, how, that's, that's to me where it all starts on what I consider to be a journey of a repeatable sales model. Because I know 50 million, I know $80 million SaaS companies who still don't think they've nailed repeatability yet, right? It just doesn't happen overnight, but, but the journey does begin here. Here, what do you see investors wanting to see for our audience? Uh, you know, finance leaders trying to produce these metrics. Dave just kind of did some of the setup right now. What do investors want to see from folks? I would say on this stage, uh, the the churn uh, and the churn is the probably the biggest, most important metric in terms of how investors look at it. A leaky bucket really doesn't doesn't work longer term. I mean, you can you keep adding uh, customers and if, if you're losing customers at the bottom, uh, it really drives investors away. So I would say you really got to think about if you're driving value to your customers, uh, you know, are, then, then the, the churn kind of speaks to that number. Uh, the second thing I would also say is not all SaaS companies are created equal. Right. I mean, what are your what are your customer contracts look like? Are they one year contracts, multi year contracts? Are your customers paying you one year in advance for the for the for the service? If the customers are paying you monthly, you'll generally see a higher churn with those type of customers. Uh, you should also look at kind of what in, investors want to look at. What are the underlying sort of uh, credit? What is the underlying credit risk of the customers? Are these customers that are SMB customers where there is inherently churn uh, in, in, within your customer base or are these customers which uh, are Fortune 2000 type companies which are like more likely to be around and will be good paying customers. So I think those are some of the key sort of metrics investors want to look at, but I would, I would definitely focus on, you know, uh, churn and net dollar retention. Yeah, and it's like the last 
section was about trying to prove out a little bit who is your client and what value are they getting from that enough that they want to become personal advocates for you in the early days. And here, as Dave said, we're trying to make it a lot more predictable. And, and that's sometimes a hard mark, particularly if the market's moving on you and your competition's shifting on you. And then you're crossing the chasm from those early pioneers into something starting to become early majority. There's a lot of moving parts in here, but here's the measures that you're trying to do and knowing, kind of keep it simple, what's happening with your uh, sales growth, what's happening with retention, what's happening with churn. I think are great points that uh, both guys made. Guys, any final comments before we switch over to growing on top, yeah. Dave? Yeah, speaking of customer advocacy, uh, you do have uh, NPS, Net Promoter Score up there. And I always think it's it's a very important metric and one just to talk about for a minute. There, there's two points I'd like to make about it. Um, the first is it's loosely coupled to renewal rate. And, and I think some people miss that. Like mm -hmm. unhappy customers renew, right? If you've got a great product and nobody else has a good alternative, right? <laughs> I, I may renew. I may not be happy about it, but I may renew, right? And, and conversely, um, happy, happy customers may not review. We just got acquired. I got a new boss. I love you guys, but we have to switch. This is a corporate standard, right? So I always say when you're doing surveys, because a lot of companies, when they do their NPS survey, they ask the NPS question, Right. But also ask oh, oh, uh, explicitly, do you intend to renew <laughs> like six months before the contract is up? And, and, and then you can just see the loose coupling between those. The other point I'd like to make on NPS is just buyer versus user. Mm -hmm. Like at my last mm -hmm. company, Host Analytics, now called Planful, it was bought by the VP of FPA. It was used by every budget owner in the company. Um, and, and the NPS, I, I won't tell you which way it was, but, but the buyer NPS was higher than the user NPS, let's just say. Uh, and that's a good thing for renewal, but it's also a little bit of a ticking time bomb, right? If those users in the end aren't happy, eventually they're going to get to the buyer. Uh, or conversely, right? If the users can be ecstatic, but the buyer's not happy, you may not get it. So I always like to look at user versus buyer, and, and, uh, and I like to remember that loose linkage. That's key points. And for all of you, again, I hope you're walking away from this is back to our three tips, right? Is uh, understand what the metrics are, what you need to do the next level for all those series A where you're trying to go. Realize it's so much more than the numbers. The numbers are critical, but it's, it's these understanding what you're asking and tasking your team and trying to manage them against to make it happen. And then there's so much nuance. If you're a high volume business versus a high ACV business, for instance, there's just so much nuance difference to what sales cycle looks like and what predictability looks like to go after. So let's let's build on this foundation. Let's go to the next stage from series B to, you know, going to the higher levels of what happened. But here, let's start with you on this one. What are the milestones to be thinking about and kind of everybody, because we've got a healthy number of larger firms on here. What do they need to be thinking about? Yeah, so I think the, as, as companies get to Series B and beyond, I think uh, investors want to re want to focus on how can you scale the business. So you you by now you've gotten some customers, how can you make this 10x bigger, right? So investors want to look at is are you going to go through the same type of sales channel or are you going to go expand into other sort of resellers? Are you how are you going to how are you going to capture market share? Are there certain industries or certain geographies which are, uh, which are you know, natural for you to penetrate? And so investors want to look at how, how are you going to do that? So I think 
from a new investor standpoint, they want to look at, you know, as uh, with the new capital that comes in, where is that going to get deployed? Um, you know, also investors want to look at sales productivity at this stage. They want to look at kind of what is the quota per salesperson? What percentage of the salespeople are actually performing above quota? And as we look at sort of new revenues, how much of that is coming from existing customers versus new customers? Investors want to look at, you know, if you can actually get uh, more, if there is a lot of headroom for growth within your existing customers, and there are case studies where we started with the customer and we sold, you know, 100K, and then now there is, we have now sold 2 million into that customer, that, that, that shows that there's a lot of headroom for growth. So if there's a story around, you know, we can still get in a, in a typical year, uh, X percent from existing customers versus Y from new customers, uh, there, it, it translates into a story about margin expansion where if you're selling into an existing customer, your contribution margin is much higher. And ultimately, you know, there's a story around expanding gross margin. So investors want to see uh, those type of metrics in terms of um, mix of higher mix of uh, new revenues coming from existing customers versus new customers. And, and then on the right, you have sort of milestones of, you know, rule of 40. I think as companies start getting to the later stages, closer to an IPO, investors want to see, you know, how, how are you going to make money in this? So either you can have revenue growth, like we talked about earlier, revenue growth being high and in lower profitability or, or vice versa. But investors ultimately want to see that there is an up, as, as you get towards the public markets, people, investors want to see that, there is an opportunity to grow revenues faster than you grow earnings faster than you can grow revenues because the number one factor which ultimately affects stock price appreciation is earnings expansion. And for those of you, I put a, a survey question in. So if you haven't done the survey already, take a look at the, the survey question on this very item. What are you trying to do to manage against this? And Dave, um, let, let's FP&A and true forecasting becomes a lot more important here because you have a bigger data set and you've proven some things out so you can, you know what it is you want to make predictable because we got a lot of finance folks here and a couple of questions have come in is like make this even more practical for me. What do people need to be thinking about in building FP&A scenarios or going, trying to plan for this? Sure. I mean, I, look, I think when, at this stage, in my opinion, there's a couple of things that matter from an FP&A perspective. One, you, you, you need to have a good driver-based model of your business um, and you need to have identified what, what drivers drive that model, that that itself could be a long conversation. Um, and, and then you need to run lots of scenarios varying those drivers. Um, so I, I think at this, at this series, people are going to want to see a three-year financial model. Um, I think that's the first thing I'd look at. You need a good driver-based model. I think the second thing I'd look at, and this is a little more visionary, but I think you need a good ICP. And, and in this range, you're big enough that you can do some great regressions against your data set and say, well, we thought the ideal customer would be uh, $5 billion plus, but hey, it turns out we're knocking it out of the park in the one to $5 billion segment. And maybe we should listen to the data because it wouldn't be the first time. I'm sure we all have a dozen stories uh, of where you <laughs> set out on one mission 
and, and something else is working a whole lot better than, than you think, right? So I think it's really important that you're looking at the data from an FPDA perspective and, and saying, okay, I know what we're trying to do, but what are we actually doing? Um, and then the last thing I'd say this slide is, look, I think in, particularly in enterprise software, you grow by hiring reps, especially in these early phases. Like, hey, we had one rep, we sold X, we had 10 rep, we sold 0.8X, uh, or sorry, 8X, so there's a sufficiency tail off, but, but we grew. And, and, and yes, in principle, mathematically, if you build that driver-based model, the more reps you type into that cell, the bigger revenues are, but also at some level, the less credible it gets, right? You could just type a thousand in there <laughs> and, and assume the rest of the model holds together. And, and that's where I think you need to say, and this is the advice here is I think you need to think about growth drivers. This is where you say, wait a minute, the growth driver isn't just hiring reps. We need to start thinking about building businesses, right? You, you don't just hire 20 reps and drop them across Europe. You build a European distribution model and a head of Europe, right? You build channels. You, you know, you don't just hire more reps. You hire people who are going to develop channels. So the channels are a growth driver. I think international, this is on the slide, is a growth driver. We didn't talk about it, but the pricing model is a growth driver, whether you do it the old way, mm -hmm. selling more seats sure. or the new mm -hmm. way, which is usage-based pricing, which we have to come back to, right? Where you've built consumption pricing into the model um, or new products, cross-sell. Um, you know, I, I personally think you should be around hundred million. I mean, unless your product roadmap says you need more products, I, I think most SaaS companies can easily get to hundred million, sometimes 500 million on effectively one product probably a can of worms to open here, but I don't think there's a lot of pressure. Chat <laughs> away, everybody. Put the questions in. Anyway, keep going, Dave. To me, the pressure is on growth drivers. How about that? It's not on products. It's on growth drivers. I think it's so key, and it's, it's we're back to modeling and trying to put numbers around it so it's something to do. But then there's so many other things that happen because there's reps, but then with how many more customers, how many more support calls is that going to be? How much more implementation? is that going to take, right? And how many more customer stories if the market bifurcates that you want to get out through what marketing channel? So it's all, it's all so interdependent, which is the way to think about it. But to take it all back to your mind will explode if you go after too many things, try to break it down to a few numbers as we've been laying out and all this. But here, any thoughts, comments, what Dave just said? I agree with Dave. I think it's also good to think about what you want to be in your next stage. So as you think about uh, okay, if you're going to go to, if as we get more reps, are we going to be able to implement all these customers on our own? Or are we going to use someone else to implement our products? Because again, you want to have a business which where you're driving more recurring revenues and keeping your services low. So are there partners where we can outsource the implementation as we continue to scale the business? Yeah. Yeah, this, this whole point of profitability, which... We could go on and on about because um, it's not getting as rewarded now, but if depending on what happens in economic cycles, it might go end up coming back. So Dave, one question did come in, which is, do you know of a great, where can somebody get their hands on a great scenario model to know the dials that then they can manipulate themselves? Well, it depends. I mean, I, I mean, look, reuse of financial models is, in my opinion, a, a largely unsolved problem. I mean, some planning vendors do let customers share their existing models, but at least in my experience with FP&A folks, they always feel like they need to rebuild the model if they really want to understand it. 
Um, and, and I'll leave it for the reader to decide whether that's a good thing or a bad thing. But, but, but FP&A vendors have talked for a long time about the potential of reusable models. I've seen relatively few people use them. Um, it, maybe you're maybe you're aware of stuff I'm not, but but look, it makes sense that I could want to use your bookings model. But then again, if we're about to commit my whole company based on a bookings model, I really really want to understand how it works and how did you model turnover and how did you model ramping and how did you model cross sell? Right, I mean those details start to matter. Well, absolutely, and for all of you, right, it's back to the, having these key dials to manage against by knowing what your customer journey is. And even then, when you benchmark yourself, there's a smart investor will give you time to say how you both align with the expectation of benchmarks, but then also how you might be unique against all of them, because they are looking for growth. They are looking for somebody who can get the 10x over their competition that comes in. So let's go back to the three tips we hoped all of you would learn from all of this, right? It's back to know the metrics that investors want to see at the next stage. We try to just knock that out of the park with all the content, sharing that with you. And then what if scenario planning is more than just the numbers? It's all about your job as senior leaders is to define what success looks like and then empower great staff to deliver against it. But by seeing further down the road on what that looks like, hopefully that puts you in a spot to be able to get some context on all that, but then tell your unique story. Dave, do you have, or here with some of the investments and we don't necessarily need the names, how have you seen somebody like manage against a benchmark, but tell their unique story so the investors really got it for an even greater investor outcome? I would say uh, the one thing that we tell uh, companies is keep it simple. Uh, one of the best stories I would say is, yeah, we tell companies, can you describe what you do? Describe your company on the back of a business card. And the best story I would say is there was a husband and wife run company with 12 employees, which described their entire company in three words. It was we network networks, Cisco systems, series A, $1.8 million from Sequoia and the rest is history. So, we network networks. And if you, think, if you think about Sequoia, I mean, think about Cisco, even today, you can describe the entire company in three words. So for a, for a small company, the CEO is their best salesperson. And if you can describe your company, stay away from acronyms, stay away from all these, how would you describe your company to a five-year-old? And can you write what you do on the back of a business card? Keep it simple. If you keep it simple, and explain what you do, I think you get investors. If you, I would stay away from long, long winded uh, explanations. So that'd be my advice. And, and I take, I mean, look, I'm, I'm a total agreement on the keep the, simple, the story simple. I do a lot of work with founders that myself and almost as a founder, you're almost definitionally too close to it. I always tell founders, if you don't think it's oversimplified, we haven't got there yet. Like, like you have to hate it at some level, right? Like, like, cause if you love it, it's too complicated. Um, so, so keep the story simple for sure. And then on the benchmark question, cause there's really two parts to your question on the benchmarking thing to me, it's always remember that, no, you know, no family has 2.5 kids, right? That, that might be the average, but, but no one has it. So, 
be ready. I mean, I always believe people need to understand the benchmarks, you know, like a CAC of between one and 1.5 is good. A CAC payback period less than 24 months is good. A LTV to CAC of greater than four is good. Like you should know those numbers. Gross margins should be 75 to 80%, right? Whatever they are, you should know them, but you shouldn't shoot for average on every one. That's like shooting to have 2.5 kids, right? So like I know a company that has a very high CAC because they do a very small initial land, but their expansion is mind boggling. So they have like 160% net dollar retention rate. It, would you pay $2 to get a dollar of revenue that grows at 60% every year? Absolutely. So th that's when I think about telling the story. It's not about being average on everything. It's about knowing the averages on everything, but then you know, seeing how your story maps to those numbers. Well, it's back to knowing how you make your customers successful. So whatever you sell, Someone's buying it in order to be a hero in their company or take some pain in the butt that they've got to deal with away. And how do you reverse engineer that backwards into where they decided they're trying to go and then how they hope best hope to fix it and be known. And, and when you nail those things and can put financial numbers around that in order to make it predictable, that's in, in, in simple terms, like uh, Dave and here said, that's when you really hit the, uh, the ball out of the park. I, these are conversations we'd love to go in much that greater detail with you on. We were in the very fortunate spot in the marketplace. I'll, I'll apply the things as we help companies run great subscription management businesses and they're coming best in the world at it. And if you want to learn more, it's bit.ly slash easy climb with a capital E and a capital C. And it's my pleasure to be able to create forums like this to be left ourselves some time be able to tackle some questions. So uh, Dave, a, a question for you, which is in a high volume business, not a high ACV, in a high volume business, what's the metrics that are important to manage against? Uh, so in a high volume business, okay. Um, so high volume businesses typically have smaller deal sizes and faster sales cycles. So uh, usually it's an inside sales model. Usually, I mean, the first big difference is not the metric, but the time period. <laughs> do you look at quarters? Or do you look at months? Most people I know running high velocity businesses run by months. They have monthly quotas and monthly metrics. So, so to me, the biggest thing on a velocity, if you have a velocity business, let's have kind of velocity metrics. <laughs> Let, let's, let's do things on a monthly basis. Like, you know, no, no great being in the sky said we had to run on quarters or years, right? In a velocity model, you run on months. Um, and then I think the metrics are gonna be, I mean, look, in a velocity model, you wanna keep stuff moving. I mean, A, you care about funnel tail off. So you care about the conversion rates, right? From MQL to opportunity, you know, stage two opportunity to stage five opportunity, stage five to close, right? You care about funnel conversion, but, but you care about funnel conversion even in a slow business. The thing that's unique to a fast business is you care about funnel velocity. You're measuring how long they are. And, and the most ruthless operators I know of those businesses basically have SLAs. This opportunity has been in stage three for 15 days. Why? That's a big problem. Red lights are up. I'm taking it away from you and giving it to somebody else, right? That to me, it's that operational discipline to keep it moving. I hope that answered the question. And we could go so much deeper on it, but the uniqueness on managing against that kind of volume and funnel velocity is so critical in order to do on all this. But here, uh, this is somebody I think who, I'm going to paraphrase the question, but they're trying to decide if they want to take venture private equity funding with 
all the experience you have in corporate finance, can you weigh one against the other? Yeah, I think you really have to think about uh, what do you want to accomplish in the business. If the if the goal is to and and how that aligns with your investors, when you bring in a venture investor, uh, whether it's Series B, C, D, uh, they at that point for a new investor to come in, it's really going to change their valuation expectations on an exit and also going to change the cap tables. So for a new investor who comes in. They want to see the company exit at a much higher valuation than where they've come in. And so if everything goes well, that's great. If everything doesn't go well, the new investor gets their money out first before anything happens. So, you know, in Silicon Valley, we are used to seeing companies raise lots of capital. There are also lots of companies who are bootstrapped, who are very capital efficient, who actually have exits which don't hit the front page of the Wall Street Journal where the founders actually take home more capital than companies which have raised, you know, series F and G where the founders get diluted to 0.1% or lower. So I think you really have to think about, you know, what do you want to accomplish in the business and how that aligns, how, how, how bringing in a new investor aligns with your objectives. Uh, that's number one. And number two, uh, when you bring in a new investor, you give up control. I mean, you bring in somebody who is going to be on the board, who is going to require reports. If you're running a business on your own, you you don't need to. You, you're not a, you're not reporting to someone. But when when you have venture investors or private equity investors, they're going to be sitting on your board, and so they're going to want to know what, what is your strategy? What's your plan? How are you going to accomplish what you, what you are? Are you hitting, not, hitting your numbers? If you're not, they, they could make changes. So I think you have to think about your personal objectives about where you want to take the company and how that aligns with uh, a new investor you want to bring in. Thank you. I hope that answered the question. Uh, Dave, a question, maybe you take the first whack and it comes to me. It sounds like somebody later stage being very pragmatic, which is, uh, how do you best take the data out of the financial system into the FP&A system so you can react fast enough with your modeling? So I think it's just a way in the weeds doer question. Uh, yeah, I mean, that's a, uh, look, I mean, the, one of the hardest parts about planning systems is connecting them <laughs> to the accounting system so you can get real-time data by the way, not only to keep your model up to date, but also for forecasting, right? So, so we need good integration between the FPA system and the accounting system. Often they come from separate vendors. I'm sure you guys have a point of view on that. <laughs> but, um, but, but the fact of the matter is you need to connect these things. And the, and the other thing I've always found difficult is dovetailing actuals into a driver-based model. Right, it's a little bit of a pro tip, but that's actually not that easy, right? Because the driver-based model going forward is running off all these drivers, but historically it's running off historical data. And sometimes the drivers are like trailing averages of the actuals. So um, this is a difficult dovetailing process. I don't have any real technical advice on it. I mean, most people who sell these packages and there's lots of services partners who will help you connect this stuff. Um, but, but yes, it's very important to be connected because we can't be building models of financials that are three months old. Yeah, absolutely. 